The Daily Rios Digest, Volume 3, Saturday, July 15th, 2023. Hey everybody, this is your host Peter with the second digest of this third volume covering Monday, July 10th through Friday, July 14th, 2023. Well, I had an exciting weekend. How about you? My Sunday, yesterday, July 9th, was a day of flash floods here in Pennsylvania and in other places along the East Coast which means leaky basements and having to relocate almost half my collection to keep it dry. Which means it's time to reflect on a topic that was fairly low on my to-do list, but definitely a personal one, and this is the perfect opportunity to do so. It has to do with my collection versus water, with a little bit of renter's trauma thrown in for good measure. I've, I've said that phrase before in various segments, renter's trauma. So here in eastern PA and other parts of the East Coast, on Sunday we got a warning around 2 p.m., 3 p.m. that flash flooding could occur through to 7 p.m. that evening. And sure enough, where I live... We got about five to seven inches in a very short amount of time, maybe more, which led to roads being swamped, areas of poor drainage and intersections just becoming rivers, and so much rain that my little suburban neighborhood just couldn't handle it. You know, I've been here for almost three years, and this has not happened in that time. So the craziest thing that happened is we have this detention basin. I think that's what it's called. It's about the size of a baseball diamond, and it's got, you know, a scooped out middle part. Uh, That got completely full in a very short amount of time. It was gushing over the sidewalks, over the intersection, and the water was just going right down uh, you know, the, the, the street in front of, of our property. Um, that basin, it has to be more than 10 feet deep. Because if you're standing at the bottom of the basin when it's dry, you are not at sidewalk level at all, you know. And think of all that water from the sky, all that water running from properties around it. There's a concrete tunnel that feeds into it, connecting to some other drainage area. It was just full, and and it looked like a gushing fountain. We joked about me taking a kayak and, and going on this new pond and seeing if I could ride the flow of water Uh, you know, to the embankment, to the street, and down the road. Uh, I stood out in in the flow of this water in front of the property, and it was up to my knees, and it was very, very powerful. So that's what was going on outside. Inside, the basement had several leaks, two of them from windows that are on the ground level looking into the basement, right? Right. And then we have this storage area 
that is built under the foundation that you have to kind of crawl into. And that was leaking as well. I don't mean just, you know, drip, drip, drip. I mean like someone left the faucet running at kind of like half opening to a little bit more in some places and water was just streaming in. Now luckily there's no carpet uh, in the basement because apparently there was another flood years before I moved in so all the carpet is going except for like a few places in the storage um, in that storage space so that you can crawl in but it still was a mess. Um, we have these French drains. They were they caught as much as they could. Uh, I used to have my collection under one of those windows because it was a perfect little alcove in this corner that was a great size for my collection. So when I moved in, I, I put down a pallet because because I, I sort of knew that they had this flood and I, I was like, okay, a pallet should be good. And I stacked up all of my comics in this little corner Kubi section and it was great. And then, you know, I, I put a few boxes, about eight to ten boxes in my room. And then later on still, uh, when I was starting to sell, I pulled a bunch of boxes into the middle of the room, onto a table, onto another pallet so that I had easier access, that I, I didn't have to just constantly unload all these boxes. So that's good. So the, the amount of books that I had in this Kubi hole only amounted to maybe a little bit more than half. So luckily for my back, for my for that weird injury that kind of came back a little bit, um, I was able to move that collection as I noticed all this water was coming in. And uh, now they are sitting, half my collection is sitting on these wooden shelves in another part of the basement that doesn't seem to be affected by any kind of weather. And um, they are much higher. Uh, some of the boxes, only a few of them got like a light little dusting of water. One of the boxes on the corner, on like one of the lower corners, got completely drenched, but it didn't soak through surprisingly you know all of that cardboard kept the water from soaking through all of my books are bagged and boarded anyway so uh you know i i, I lucked out but it, again it made me think it made me go back to think oh my god here we go this is my this is the comic collector and the renter's trauma the stuff that you have to like uh you know so that sometimes come up and you're like ah so so let's go through a couple of things. If you're like me and you have a collection and you move a lot, you really have to think about your collection each time you move. Not only how are you going to move it, but where's it going to go into the into the new space and how are you going to handle uh, having uh, this large of a, of a collection? So I started um, to purchase... Uh, my, my comic collection really grew when I lived in the second home that I lived in as a kid. now And nothing was properly stored. I think some, most of my comics were in beer boxes. I didn't have many that were bagged and boarded. I used to keep a stack by the foot of my bed. And sure enough, my, my stepdad's dog decided to pee on some of them before I could yell at him and, and you know, and then he ran away. So there was like tragedy one where I had this like small stack of books that were, you know, peed on. Um, and then in the third home I lived in, 
this was around the time when I was in junior school, that's when I started to buy boxes. I started to bag and board. My bedroom was on the third floor. Everything was kind of okay weather-wise. Um, I was really building up a collection. I think we lived in this home for well over 10 years. And um, in my and then we got to my college years while I was in this place. I didn't take my collection, obviously. I would take like maybe a box or two to read, but most of my collection stayed safely in my home. All right, then we get to sophomore year of college. Again, my collection is not with me, but uh, I lived in a, it was kind of a Trinity home in Philadelphia, but not quite. And I lived on the second floor. Over winter break, uh, I get a phone call from one of my roommates that the roof had collapsed because of a of a snow that we got. This would have been, let's see, uh, probably 93, 94. And we got this really bad snowstorm and uh, the, the ceiling collapsed and the stuff in my room got damaged here and there. Um, we had to fight the realtor because they were being jerks about it, but eventually they fixed things. So that was like the first major thing that happened. Um, then in 1996, 1997, I'm out of college. My parents have moved to yet another home, the home that they are in to this day. I got a second, I, I got a smaller room in this home because I wasn't, you know, I wasn't there. I was in college um, but I did move back after college. I put my collection in the finished basement in this new home. No big deal. Again, I think I put them on a pallet. Uh, everything seemed to be fine. You know, it's a, it's a, it wasn't like it was a newer house, but it certainly was a, a better house, a sturdier house. You know, this is, like I said, this is where my parents live to this day. So we're talking, you know, almost 30 years. Um, but I do remember one time I was staying at my sister's home for some reason, I, and I got a call from my mom, and she said, hey, the water heater broke in the basement. Your collection is getting wet. And I was like, oh. So, you know, I'm at this point, I'm great at bagging and boarding. I rush home. Sure enough, the basement is all wet. The only thing that happened is a lot of the bottom boxes I had to throw away because they were just drenched. But surprisingly, all of the comics in those boxes, totally fine. Now, I had to dry them off because even though they didn't seep into the comic itself, the bags got wet. And I had to replace a lot of bags. Some comics got a little wet because maybe there was like, you know, an imperfection in the comic bag. But that was tragedy too. And then what did I do with the boxes? I think I put them in another part of the room or higher up and uh, another part of the basement and everything was okay. So then my from my parents' basement, um, let's see, I moved into Philadelphia. This would be 1999 to about 2003 with an ex-girlfriend, moved into an apartment in Center City and it was a one bedroom, but we had this really cool, long, skinny closet. I, I don't know, maybe it was some kind of like storage closet. And it might have been because the freight elevator was somewhere near, uh, you know, on the other side of our, our apartment. But it was perfect for comic boxes. In fact, 
uh, my ex at the time, she was the one who saw the apartment first and she said, hey, you're going to love this closet. And it was great. You could stack all your books. Everything was safe. There was no weather issues. You had It was a little bit of a pain because you had to take out the front boxes to get to the back ones, but that was perfect. So there were no tragedies other than maybe some spiders, um, but that was great. That was a great place. And then with this ex-girlfriend, we moved to New York, to Queens for a year. We got a two-bedroom. It was a second-floor apartment. Don't ever live in a second-floor apartment. You should always live on the top floor because, you know, you have to deal with the people underneath you and the people above you. So like I said, it was a two-bedroom. And one of the bedrooms, perfect. I could store all my comics. We, we put a little bed in there. We put my computer desk in there. It was really great. It was like this guest room where we could go into that room and just, you know, for entertainment. Um, but then there was a little bit of a tragedy. This is like a semi-tragedy, number three. The upstairs neighbor, apparently their roof sprung some crazy kind of leak and that came into this second bedroom. Fortunately, nothing major happened, but it was enough that I was like, oh, oh no, not again. Uh, and then I broke up with that ex. Uh, I had to move out of Queens back into my parents' home. And in fact, Kevin and Shane uh, from CGS at different points helped me to move, especially my comic collection. Uh, and I also had trades at this point and, and other kind of hardcover collections. I was selling a lot on eBay during these years in Philly and New York, but I still had a pretty sizable collection. So I moved back to my parents. This is when CGS started. So we're talking 2004, 2005. And I would be there for about three years. Once again, my collection back downstairs in the basement, but everything seemed to be okay. I also had a bigger room in the house this time. So I think I kept some of the boxes in, in that bigger room as well. So I'm there for a number of years, and then my next big move is to move to South Philadelphia, where I stayed for, what, I think like 11 years. And I initially had my collection in a storage unit, and I would only bring a few of my comics to my apartment, a few of my boxes, I should say. But then at, at some point, I gave up the storage unit, which meant I had to bring all of my collection to my small room in my two-bedroom apartment that I was sharing with a roommate. And they were all stacked up in a corner or under my desk. And, you know, this is where my collection grew to about 35 long boxes by the end of those 11 years. And this apartment was um, in a great location with a, with a shitty landlord and a not so good, um, not so good renting experience here and there. If I have to keep counting tragedies, I can't because we had things like the upstairs neighbor, we were on the first floor, the upstairs neighbor had a portable washing machine that would overflow, their kids would be in the bathtub, that would overflow into our hallway. Um, we would have leaks in my room because the landing above it had very poor drainage. Never really affected my comics, but it was enough that it was a constant issue. Hurricane Sandy happened during um, 
me being in this apartment. In fact, I think I did an episode about that in the early years of the Daily Rios. So there was just a lot. I never had anything too major with my collection. It was just more, this is where like my renter's trauma really kicked in. And then after those 11 years, I moved in with another ex to another location, really great apartment, another two bedroom, perfect spot for my collection, out of the way. As I said, this is this is like 35 long boxes and some short boxes and a whole mess of trades, right? I had to have friends help us move in. The thing they remember the most about moving us in, it's all about those boxes. That's the only thing they remember. They're like, oh my God, those boxes. Because you can't carry them more than one at a time unless they're on like a dolly. But to go upstairs... You have to carry them one at a time. They mess up your skin because they're cardboard. Yeah, that was when I was like, okay, I need to do something about this collection. And of course, I never did. Nothing major happened at this location. We had one very minor rain leak, but this apartment complex, they were very good about fixing things up. Of course, we get to the pandemic year, and that's when the breakup happens, and I really should have invested time in selling my collection, which I was doing at the time, um, because that's when my laptop, you know, fried, and I was selling, trying to sell books, and I knew I was going to be moving in September of that year, and I didn't want to move these comics again, and I was like, oh no, that's what I have to do, and that's, you know, where I am now. I, uh, I moved out of that apartment by using two um, U-Haul vans, like or two loads uh, in this moving van. And one of the loads was, you know, a good three-fourths of the truck was, was my comics. And I moved them into the basement where I am now, and that's that more or less just brings us up to date. So that's why I call it renter's trauma. I'm sure it's the same for homeowners, you know, when, whenever you always, you know, you're having to fix things or something major happens and you have this stress, you get dreams that reflect that. And I have dreams of going to one of the homes um, when I was a kid and walking into my room and it's still the same, but the ceiling is full of holes and rain coming in and, and I have to like cover my clothes with with bags or I have to make sure they don't get wet or there's a lot of cobwebs and or I want to go lay down but I got to make sure I lay in a way that the rain doesn't hit me um or or I have other dreams where I where I rent from my old landlord again the shitty one and it's a new place and it kind of seems like it's okay and then you go to like the eighth floor right because that's how dreams are And it's like, oh, there's just an entire wall missing or the wall doesn't go all the way down to the floor and you can see the structure behind it and you can see critters and cobwebs and um, this psychological effect. It came back to me during, you know, yesterday during this rainstorm because I was like, leaks, my comics, oh no, go save them. So I was like pacing up and down because the rain kept coming in and and everybody just say just said to me like what are you gonna do what are you gonna do you know it's not too bad it's not totally going on the floor it's going in these french drains that's good except for the kubi area which was like a little mini waterfall and once my comics were safe that's good now of course it was you know a little it was getting damp down there and we were running the humidifier and then we got fans down there but 
Oh, yeah. The whole psychological effect that I have when it comes to water, it's very, very real. If anybody wants to do a study about this, please reach out for me. I will gladly participate for a fee, of course, or free food. So so that was this weekend, a definite tragedy, another tragedy, a holy shit moment. That's why last week's digest, the first digest of this third volume, came out a few days later because, um, you know, Sunday was a wash, no pun intended. Um, and then Monday I was doing a lot of cleanup. Uh, and then eventually I, I was able to put out the episode. This is really why I am, you know, eager and desperate to sell as much as my collection as I can, because if they ever get damaged, then I'm really screwed. Um, so if, I don't know if listeners heard, but a few digests ago, I talked about, um, how I would love to raise some funds because I'm having trouble finding work. Uh, and one of the ways that I'm doing that is by providing what I guess people are calling blind boxes or very similar to like loot crate, where if you provide a donation, I will match that in comics. And um, if it's a, a generous donation, maybe I can even pay for half the shipping or all of the shipping. I got two people uh, since that announcement and um, super generous in their donations. And it's really fun to curate their reading experience, you know, and knowing that, you know, I'm going to put in single issues and small little miniseries or small runs, uh, maybe a collection here and there um, based on their reading, what they like, or maybe what they're inexperienced with in terms of reading. And, you know, not everything is going to be of value, right? You know, you're not going to be able to sell everything and make your money back, but maybe one or two things you might be able to. I'm going to throw in random stuff. I'm going to throw in um, stuff that uh, is like really great to read. And then I'm going to throw in this thing like, okay, what do you think of this? You know, and you may read that and you go, yeah, I didn't like that. But that's the whole thing about a blind box um, is to, especially from, from my collection, uh, you're going to get an, an interesting reading experience, even if it's not all, you know, um, you may not super love everything, but I try to match one comic per dollar. If it's a trade and there's like 17 issues in a trade, I, I match it down to like 15. You know, just trying to, again, I, I, in lieu of a fundraiser, this is a way that you can get something back. But it's also helping me because it's getting rid of my collection, which is what I really, really want. So back to the weather. I, I hope this weekend was a fluke. I've been telling my family for years, once we started getting weird weather, you know, tornadoes in Philadelphia, what? And and these rainstorms and these wind events. I keep telling my family, like, look at your home insurance policies and you need to redo them because there's some bad shit coming. Mother Nature is angry. We're going to pay for it. And I just hope my paper collection survives. Timeline Trivia Tuesday for July 2023, Part 1. So this is my look at comic history with a little trivia thrown in, taking a look back 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and 30 years ago for the month of July to celebrate first issues, last issues, events, uh, creator anniversaries, all kinds of things. Now, I'm splitting up 
for uh, July. I'm splitting up um, the the trivia segment. I'll do 40 years ago, 50 years ago, and 60 years ago in another digest. But I wanted to ask you, do you like when I split up the the segment? Um, or is it okay that I only do, you know, three anniversary uh, decades in one segment and then I do the other three? The reason I ask is because it takes a lot of research to do this segment. And sometimes if I do the full trivia, all six decade anniversaries in one segment, it can just take a while, not only to do the research, but to record. So um, I always like sometimes splitting it up. So you let me know. What do you like? Do you like that I split it up? Do you do you wish I do it all in one segment? Doesn't matter. Okay, here we go. Let's look at some comic history for the month of July, starting 10 years ago, July of 2013. The uh, title Batman 66 begins, both digitally and in print. The first issue was by Jeff Parker and Jonathan Case. All of the covers, I think, were all done by Mike Allred. These were new stories inspired by the classic TV series, and the print run would run for 30 issues. And then, of course, we would get things like Wonder Woman, what is it, 77 or 78, and then all the way up to Batman 89 and Superman 78 or whatever it is. Uh, this is something that I wish they would do more of because it's it's it was a great idea then and it continues to be a great idea up to now. And then we have Justice League Trinity War beginning 10 years ago, July of 2013. In Justice League issue number 22, this was by Jeff Johns and Yvonne Hayes. It was a crossover story between Justice League, Justice League of America, and Justice League Dark, all about Pandora's box. It would introduce the Crime Syndicate and Earth-3 to the New 52 universe, and then the follow-up to this event would be another event entitled Forever Evil. And then Pandora would get her own series, Trinity of Sin, Pandora, that would run for 14 issues. The first issue was released in July of 2013 by Ray Fox with art by Danielle Samper, who is... uh, uh, who was on Dark Crisis and is going to be, let's see, on the Wonder Woman book with Tom King. So uh, Daniel's name all the way back in 2013. Uh, Pandora was that character. She was pretty much the personification of the New 52 universe. And uh, I am woefully ignorant with all that stuff, all those comics. So that's about as much information as I know. There was another storyline that started actually in June of 2013, but picked up speed here. Batman Year Zero, exploring the Batman origin for a whole year. Over at Marvel, Marvel Now, we got Avengers AI, number one, by Sam Humphreys and Andre Lima Araujo, running for 12 issues, spinning out of Age of Ultron. Uh, this had Hank Pym and Vision leading Victor Mancha, a Doombot, a character known as Alexis the Protector, Monica Chang of S.H.I.E.L.D. as they battle the AI known as Demetrios. Kind of interesting, right? We're having a whole bunch of AI conversations now. Also from uh, 10 years ago, Guardians of the Galaxy number 5 
features the character of Angela, who also was introduced at the end of Age of Ultron. This was by Brian Michael Bendis and Sarah Pacelli. This is Angela, the character that Neil Gaiman created when he was writing Spawn for Todd McFarlane. She is now over in the Marvel Universe, and eventually she will become uh, Thor's half-sister and uh, Odin's daughter. So, uh, yeah, ten years ago she entered the Marvel Universe. And then your question comes from Superior Foes of Spider-Man, the first issue dropping ten years ago, by Nick Spencer and Steve Lieber. I think it's quite funny... That this very um, popular book at the time was written by Nick Spencer, who eventually probably fell out of the good graces of many comic uh, readers. This would run for 17 issues. It was all about the Secret Six, even though there were only five members, uh, you know, all Spider-Man villains. And um, I've never read it, but uh, I know it was very popular at the time. So your question Name the five members of the new Sinister Six in Superior Foes of Spider-Man number one. All right, let's go 20 years ago. 20 years ago, July of 2003, Black Panther 62 was the final issue of the Christopher Priest run that had artwork by Jim Calafiore. One of the four Marvel Knights titles that kicked off the imprint in 1998 was finally coming to the to an end in fact yeah it was the longest well no daredevil i guess daredevil but that had a lot a lot of restarts i think daredevil was probably still going on at this point so um yeah black panther the second longest running marvel knights title uh it would spin off into something called the crew uh captain america falcon uh, sort of was like a spiritual spin-off yeah really great series uh just so so one still one of my favorite if not my favorite marvel runs also 20 years ago july of 2003 uh we got trouble number one of five a miniseries by mark miller and the dodsons this was all about characters named may mary Ben and Richie. And if those names sound familiar, it's because you could say those are Aunt May, Mary Parker, Ben Parker, and Richard Parker, the the family of Peter Parker. So it was this romance story. It had to deal with pregnancy. It had these photo covers. And eventually at (laughs) at the end, here's a little bit of spoilers, what you find out is the character of May gets pregnant, but not by Ben, but by Richard. And she doesn't want to be a young mother, so she gives the baby to Mary and Richard. And the notion was that Peter Parker was actually Aunt May's son. And I think they tried to make this, like, hint that this could be the new continuity for the ultimate line of books for ultimate spider-man but it i don't think it ever stuck and they didn't outright say that they were the parkers i believe in the miniseries it's been a long time since i read it but it was there it was all there and it was very weird from wildstorm and cliffhanger we got aerosmith one of six by kurt Busick, carlos pacheco who recently passed jesus moreno richard starkings alex sinclair 
Over at DC, Teen Titans number one by Jeff Johns, Mike McCone. This was a super popular series at the time. It would run for a hundred issues. And this was one of those titles, along with JSA, um, Batman Hush, and some other titles that we're going to get down the road uh, 20 years ago that was really upping DC's game. For the makeup of the members of the Teen Titans, we had it was a play on what Wolfman and Perez did. So Wolfman and Perez brought three sidekicks, established sidekicks, Robin, Wonder Girl, and Kid Flash, and introduced four new members, Cyborg, Starfire, Raven, and Changeling, although he had been around for a while, known as Beast Boy. What Jeff Johns did is he flipped that. In his Teen Titans, Changeling or Beast Boy, Raven, Starfire, and Cyborg, they are the established characters. And the quote-unquote new members of the Titans are the younger Robin, Tim Drake, Wonder Girl, Cassandra, or she's known as Cassie, Cassie Sandsmark, and Kid Flash, uh, which Bart Allen had taken over that identity for this series or within the first story arc. And then they also had the clone Superboy. Basically, they, they inherited Young Justice. But it was the young sidekicks that were now, quote-unquote, the newbies. And much of that first year or two would follow some of the stories that Wolfman and Perez were doing in their New Teen Titans volume. You know, you got a rematch with Deathstroke, Brother Blood played a part, and Johns was kind of riffing on on what he grew up on. Um, But again, very, very popular series for a very long time. Also 20 years ago, July of 2003, formerly known as the Justice League, number one of six, by the Boahaha creative team, um, all but Terry Austin. So we had Giffen, Demetrius, McGuire, and Bob LaPan on letters, but on inks we had uh, Rubenstein. So uh, this would eventually get a sequel in JLA Classified, called, uh, I still can't believe it's the Justice League, I think. And that was around, what, 2005. That would have an interesting um, publishing history because it clashed with a major story that had happened at DC at the time. You know, you had this Boahaha era with the Justice League and Blue Beetle and Maxwell Lord, and then there was this other thing that was happening in DC in 2005 that clashed and, and readers were... A little confused by it all, I guess you could say. Also, 20 years ago, July of 2003, we got Superman Birthright, number one of 12 by Mark Wade, Lionel Francis Yu over in the DC Universe. This was a retelling of the Superman origin yet again for a new decade. Um, this is the one where he got this like this aura or, or no, he could see people's auras, I think. He was also a vegetarian. Um, I think for Mark Wade, the key to this was the was the word right, birthright. Not only, you know, like, oh, this is my birthright, but it was like almost saying, I'm going to do Superman's birth right or correctly, right? Um, I haven't read this one in a long time. I think this is actually on the DC app, so I should probably read it. We had a bunch of anniversaries 20 years ago, a Fantastic Four 500, The End of the Unthinkable Storyline, Flash 200 by Jeff Johns and Scott Collins, 
the end of the Blitz storyline, leading to a story where I think Wally gets amnesia, I think. JSA 50, The End of the Princes of Darkness by Johns again, Dave Goyer, and Leonard Kirk. Your question for 20 years ago, July of 2003, comes from Fallen Angel number one. This is a series that premiered 20 years ago. It would run for 20 issues by Peter David and David Lopez about a character named Lee fighting crime and corruption in a city that turns out to be the biblical city of Enoch. There were a lot of connections to Supergirl because that's a series that Peter David was coming off of. And at this point, the Supergirl in the DC Universe was still that protoplasmic Supergirl who then became, you know, so many other things during the Peter David run. So everybody just assumed that this character of Lee, this new fallen angel, was Linda Lee or Linda Danvers. Um, The reason why this was happening is because we were about ready to get Supergirl back within the DC Universe, meaning Superman's cousin. Um, I think the story goes that Dan DiDio was like, look, when we try to explain Supergirl, it can't be that she's from this alternate dimension, she's a copy of Lana Lang, and she's a protoplasmic being, plus she's also an Earth angel. No. We need to go back to Supergirl being Superman's cousin. That would happen in Jeff Loeb's Superman Batman run, which is about to be released in August of 2003. So that's celebrating 20 years ago. Crazy. And in that title, she would eventually show up. Supergirl, the real Supergirl, would eventually show up. Hence the need to find a place for this protoplasmic being. Um, But then there were complications because eventually at the end of this volume, um, Peter David never really cleaned all that up. This series would eventually move to IDW. Uh, There was some artwork by uh, J.K. Woodward, probably the first time I saw J.K.'s artwork. That would begin in December of 2005, and that would run for 33 issues, and it would be followed up with two miniseries. And this is where the character becomes something completely different, but then she meets this other character named Lynn, you know, like Linda, and Peter David strongly hints that that is the protoplasmic Linda Danvers um, that he used to write about. By the way, the last two covers of the DC run were by Mr. George Perez. So your question comes from this title, A Fallen Angel. What was the actual name of the city where Fallen Angel had her base of operations? All right, last one here. Let's go 30 years ago, July of 1993, Uncanny X-Men 304. Again, we are in the middle of Fatal Attractions. Really great story arc. This was the issue where they held the funeral for Ilyana. Uh, Magneto reveals himself to be alive to the X-Men. We already knew that. And there's this big, you know, debate and this big ideological debate and and a battle. And Colossus winds up changing sides and joining Magneto and his acolytes setting up some major events for the X-Men. Over at Ultraverse in Malibu, uh, we had some more titles spinning out of Ultraverse, Freaks number one and Mantra number one. Freaks would run 18 issues, Mantra would run 24 issues. That first issue of Mantra was by Mike W. Barr and Terry Dotson. 
it's a pretty great creative team for uh, you know a title at another publisher. Wildcats Trilogy number one of three was released 30 years ago. I think this is the first time I saw Jay Lee artwork. And this trilogy, I think, took place between like the first miniseries and eventually when it would become a, a regular series. I can't remember. Um, DC, we had Hawkman number one, a new title featuring Hawkman, which would run 33 issues by John Ostrander and Jan Dersima, spinning out of the Hawkworld series that spun out of the Hawkworld miniseries. And eventually this series, when it got around to zero hour in 94, would mess around with Hawkman's origin yet again. I think he was half human at the time possibly with Native American origins, but I don't remember. I really liked this era of Hawkman. I loved the original Hawkworld miniseries, which I think, did we cover that on Raging Bullets, I think? I think I was a guest with Sean and Jim, and we did that. It was either that or the Longbow Hunters. Um, I loved Hawkworld. I actually liked the Hawkworld series, and then I liked some of this series as well. As confusing as it all was, but yeah, something about it, it's probably scan scandalous to say, um, you know, because in my mind, I forgot all about that this was the first time the Hawk people had come to uh, Earth post-crisis, right? You know, that was the that was the trapping of the Hawk World series that some editor wasn't smart enough to say, okay, when we go from the miniseries to the series, let's just put a caption that says 10 years later. You know, so that then everything could still exist in continuity. But no, they had to mess around. Uh, 30 years ago, July of 1993, gave us Black Orchid number one, the start of that Vertigo series that would run for 22 issues. Your creative team was Dick Foreman, Jill Thompson and company. Flash 80 was the start of the Mike Waringo run on Flash with Mark Wade. We would also get some Alan Davis covers. Uh, previous to that, we got, what, Greg LaRocque was on the book. But this really kicked Mark Wade's run into high gear. Um, I think Flash got like a little bit of a tweak to his costume, but I can't remember. And then your question comes from another series that began in July of 1993, Catwoman number 1, which would run for 94 issues. If ever there's a series at DC that kind of embodies, um, you know, the stereotypes that that the 90s get, you know, like uh, especially with, with Babe artwork, Catwoman would be it as drawn by Jim Ballant and Giordano on inks. In fact, um, Jim Ballant would do a, a long run on the book all the way up to the 70s, I believe, with some fill-ins here and there. We would get writers such as Chuck Dixon, Doug Munch, Devin Grayson. Your question, however, who was the writer on that first issue of Catwoman and would and would be the writer for most of the first 14 issues? All right, here are your answers. Starting 10 years ago, July of 2013, name the five members of the new Sinister Six. We have Boomerang. Shocker, Speed Demon, Overdrive, and a new Beetle. Your second question from July of 2003, what was the city that was the base of operations for Fallen Angel? That would be Bet Noir, B-E-T-E, -E, Noir. 
And your third question, your third answer, 30 years ago, July of 1993, who was the writer on the first issue of Catwoman? And that would be Mary Jo Duffy. All right. How did you do? Did you get those three? Let me know. We'll be back in another Digest for part two. Wednesday Night Fever, taking a look at comic book recommendations for the week of July 12th, but I have one review before I do so, one current review, which is something I've been wanting to do more and more of for this volume of the Digest. Um, So Sunday night, after all of the rain shenanigans, uh, we did a recording for DC All-Stars. I don't know when this will be released, and we covered our top six titles of Dawn of DC. And Dawn of DC is about ready to hit six months in July sometime. Um, and we took we took a look at, you know, those titles that we all really agreed on were our favorites. And then on our list, obviously there's some titles that, um, that we, we didn't all agree on or maybe only one of us pointed out. So you're going to hear that episode. I'll, of course retweet it and put it on the website and you'll get a real good discussion on many books um, for Dawn of DC and a couple of surprises of which books you know some of us really liked. For this Wednesday Night Fever, one of the books I didn't talk about but I read after the fact, after that recording, was Adventures of Superman John Kent, Jonathan Kent. Uh, six issue miniseries I think and I read four issues that are on the DCU app as of this recording. Um, This is by Tom Taylor, Clayton Henry, Jordi Belair, Wes Abbott, and then on issue four, the art team was Derek Robertson and Norm Rapmund. I really enjoyed this series. I'm enjoying this series to date. So the premise is John Kent is uh, called on by two characters from Earth 2, yes, that's right, Earth 2, Val Zod, and Red Tornado, and they need his help because someone is killing Kal-El's across the multiverse, and you find out that it is Ultraman of Earth 3, the same Ultraman that kidnapped a young John Kent during the Bendis run, and kept him in Earth-3, kept him in a volcano for many, many years, and that's when he grew up. And then we got the uh, teenage Jonathan Kent. So that's the premise. That's what kicks off this series, and then it goes into a whole other thing, because Tom Taylor is writing it, which incorporates the Injustice universe. Now, I don't know where in the Injustice story this is taking place, um, because I haven't read it yet. I'm still only within the first, um, first six year, six, uh, six months, I think. So, um, but they mentioned certain characters that have just died. So it's probably within the Injustice story. I don't think it takes place after the Injustice story. So anyway, um, 
Eventually, the Injustice universe gets involved. Jonathan Kent is involved um, within the Injustice universe. And he's also dealing with this new power that comes from the whole Lazarus Planet affair. And it is a power very similar to what his father went through with the whole thing with Electric Blue Superman. Um, I'm, I don't know, just something about this I'm really enjoying. First of all, the Clayton Henry artwork is really good. The story is easy to read. It touches on some different parts of the multiverse, which is nice. For instance, again, referencing Earth 2, there's even a footnote that says, um, you know, these characters are from Earth 2, Earth 2 World's End, Earth 2 uh, Society. I mean, that's just crazy that they're referencing New 52 stuff, right? But that means that this female Red Tornado gets to meet the Lois Lane of our Earth because Red Tornado is Lois Lane. That's pretty interesting. Um, you get that moment, which is great. I love that the whole Injustice universe runs by a, a whole new set of rules and physics. Like, John is continuously surprised Number one, that everybody is strong. Number two, that they react um, like out of nowhere, right? Like they just do things. And if you think about it, Injustice is supposed to be based off a video game. They are reacting like somebody is playing them almost. And and it's fun that I'm assuming this is on Taylor's mind. And it's fun that John recognizes that. So I really do like that. So all of those things make for uh, a very interesting read. I don't think it would have been in my top six, um, but it's still uh, a, a worthwhile read, especially on the app. And I also like that Tom Taylor is doing something with Jonathan Kent that is other than um, him always having these conversations with his dad or with Nightwing or with his boyfriend about you know his place within the Superman legacy within the family, within the superhero superhero community, uh, you know, or anything, uh, you know, questions about his sexuality. Like, he's just, it's there. In fact, um, part of his persona is something that he relies on when he's in the Injustice universe in an interesting way, but it's not the foremost thing, and he's just having, no pun intended, an adventure. Plus, like I said, Tom Taylor gets to play around with the Injustice universe again. So you mix all those things together, and it's pretty great. The uh, Lex Luthor of the Injustice universe has a really funny line where he's talking about... Um, so the, the, the character of Ultraman, that is the one that is uh, going around trying to kill all these Kal-El's, uh, Lex Luthor says maybe uh, the reason he's doing that is because... He's tired of all of the various Superman beating up on Ultraman. And it just made this funny notion, this funny picture in my mind. Like, Ultraman is like the one character that is not Superman. All the rest are some versions of Superman. And for some reason, it's like, he must sit there in his Earth-3 universe and then, oh no, here comes the Earth-0 Superman. Here comes the Earth-57 Superman. Here comes the Earth... Uh, Superman from Earth-17, and they always seem to pick on him. Uh, I just thought it was funny. It was a funny moment. So I like it. I, I do enjoy it. I'm looking forward to seeing how it finishes up, how it wraps up, if there's anything with uh, these new powers that John has. And uh, yeah, 
it's a good book. So I wanted to make sure that I, I threw that out there, kind of like an, an addendum to whenever that DC All-Stars episode ships. All right, let's go to your recommendations. We're going to start with Image Comics' Fish Flies, one of six. That's where the music for this bumper came from. Uh, by Jeff Lemire, $5.99. A new tale of small-town surrealist horror. And if there's something that Jeff Lemire does well, it's that. He also has a compendium coming out, Royal City Compendium, Volume 1, for $29.99, collecting issues 1 through 14. Again, they say this is Jeff Lemire returning to the literary and thematic territory of what he was doing in Essex County, a sprawling, ambitious graphic novel that charts the lives, loves, and losses of a troubled family and a vanishing town across three decades. That is something Jeff Lemire does well. Um, I wrote in my notes, hmm, do I need to do a Jeff Lemire reading project? Going all the way back to whatever mocha festival I went to, and I just randomly picked up Lost Dogs, I guess it was, a printing of Lost Dogs from Jeff Lemire, and this was before, was this before Essex County had come out, Tales from the Farm? I don't remember. Um, I have, I have since sold that, um, printing of Lost Dogs, uh, which is a shame because I don't know if it was a first print, but it definitely was an early print and it would be great to have that again. Of course, knowing me, I would sell it or give it away anyway. All right, let's continue on. First second from Box Brown, we have The He-Man Effect, How American Toy Makers Sold Your Childhood for $26.99. This is the first I'm hearing of that, where Box Brown unravels how marketing uh, that targeted children in the 80s has shaped adults in the present. But what are the consequences when a developing brain is saturated with the same kind of marketing bombardment found in Red Scare propaganda? In the He-Man Effect, Brown shows us how corporate manipulation brought muscular, accessory-stuffed action figures to dizzying heights, bringing beloved brands like He-Man, Transformers, My Little Pony, and even Mickey Mouse himself into the spotlight. That sounds like a great read. From Clover Press, we have Tragedy of Macbeth softcover, $24.99 by Stuart Kenneth Moore, based on, well, based on Shakespeare's Macbeth, but also documenting a stage performance in Prague set against the stark memories and places and myths of his own homeland. The pacing of the panels and scene serve to clarify aspects of the play that can be hard to understand on the stage. In addition to this graphic novel adaptation, this volume also includes the original play script by Shakespeare. Comics and theater, yay! Uh, we have from Marvel, X-Men Days of Future Past, Doomsday, one of four, by Mark Guggenheim, Manuel Garcia, Jeff Shaw on cover. This is, for $4.99, returning to the future tale that reveals the events leading up to the original Days of Future Past two-issue story that inspired many spinoffs and a movie and so, so many more. Um, it says here, witness the 30-year descent into the dystopic future replete with the previously untold deaths of key mutant characters as we flesh out one of the most celebrated X-Men timelines 
in its own series for the first time. I thought they told this story already. The stuff that happened, you know, prior to X-Men, what is it, 140 and 141 or 141 and 142? I guess not. So here we go. I guess they're going to do it here. And then from DC Comics, a long-awaited title for me, World's Finest Teen Titans 1 of 6 by Mark Wade, who has really created a brand for himself with this whole World's Finest stuff. Very much like Bendis' Wonder Comics, but better. <laughs> uh, Mark Wade, Emanuela Lupicino on the artwork and company, $3.99. Spinning out of Batman Superman World's Finest. This is just a modern retelling of the early adventures of the original Teen Titans, Robin, Wonder Girl in her jumpsuit uniform, Flash, Speedy, Aqualad, and also Bumblebee thrown in as well. And uh, there's going, obviously there's going to be a lot of kookiness and zaniness, but there's also supposed to be some thing happening in the background that will make you look at this team in a different way. Um, you know, that whole Mark Wade spin. People, people still saying this is like a Silver Age thing. Nope, it is Bronze Age. If you have Wonder Girl in her in her jumpsuit you look, and if you have Bumblebee in the team, this is clearly from mid-70s, early 70s, mid-70s Teen Titans, if not late 70s. Um, and that is Bronze Age territory. It is not Silver Age territory. Uh, all of the covers, Chris Somney, Doc Shaner, Jim Chung, Scott Forbes, uh, Emanuela Lupicino, um, I purchased, I think, three of the covers, any of the ones that were not ratio covers, because I am in love with the look of this, and I'm so excited to read that. All right, there you go. Those are your recommendations for the week of July 12th. The Daily Reads Thursday. This is another segment that I've been meaning to get back to for a while. This is where I take a look at several reading projects that I have floating, juggling. I might talk about Giant Size Era X-Men. I might talk about Heroes Reborn. But today, I'm going to talk about a new reading project that I've started within the last month or so, focusing on the Ultimate Universe from Marvel. This is all because of Hickman and Brian Hitch's uh, in miniseries called Ultimate Invasion, which I haven't read yet, but uh, I'm excited about that, and I, and I thought, you know what? I largely, for the most part, skipped most of the history of the Ultimate Universe, other than Ultimates and maybe a few other miniseries here and there. But I was like, you know what, let's go back and read some Ultimate comics, just because. And I started to read two titles, Ultimate Spider-Man and Ultimate X-Men. And I'm trying to go in somewhat publishing continuity. Basically what I'm doing is reading a trade's worth of one title, and then I'll read a trade's worth of another title. I think I have to read like 
the Ultimate Team-Up book and maybe Ultimate Magazine or something like that. And then I don't know what comes next. I don't know if it's Fantastic Four or whatever. But either way, you know, I'm just going to try to read uh, a story's worth as opposed to actual like, oh, you know, here's an issue of Spider-Man and then X-Men and then Spider-Man and then X-Men. My initial thoughts um, about, so I read, let's see, Ultimate Spider-Man 1 through 7 and Ultimate X-Men 1 through 6. My initial thoughts, um, you can see how these first story arcs are more or less expansions of the origin stories of these two concepts, somewhat. Sometimes it's it's directly related to the story. Sometimes it's just about larger beats. For instance, with Ultimate X-Men, the larger beat is in their first appearance, they battled Magneto. Well, in the first six issues, they battle Magneto. For Ultimate Spider-Man, the story in Amazing Fantasy 15 is told within the first six or seven issues, more or less, with a lot of differences, obviously. Um, these books read or, or move very fast time-wise. So in the X-Men book, uh, there are several weeks that are skipped between issues and they'll say it, you know, they'll say it's been a few issues or been a few weeks. It's been a few months. That's very similar to how Claremont was writing the giant size era X-Men because it was on a bi-monthly schedule, there were times where he would make reference that, oh, it's been a couple of weeks. For Ultimate Spider-Man, it's more about the scenes. Bendis is fairly early in his career for mainstream comics, and he seems to jump sometimes jarringly from scene to scene, and you're not quite sure, okay, does this take place in one day, two days, one week, you know? Um, The other thing I noticed And this could be a comment on who we were as a society in, uh, you know, when did this, when did these issues came out? They came out in 2000. Everybody feels very flippant, very sarcastic, very edgy, very moody. Emotions are very brittle. And a lot of these characters aren't nice. Like in Spider-Man, the supporting teenagers are not nice. Flash Thompson, not nice. Um, Kong, not nice. Even Mary Jane at times, not nice. In the X-Men, Storm, not nice. Um, you know, Mark Miller's humor in that book is completely sophomoric. I mean, it's even bordering on gross at times. He makes a spina bifida joke. He makes a KKK joke. He makes, um, he has Wolverine uh, hitting on a 19 year old, like there's just a lot of grossness in, um, ultimate X-Men. Um, and we're learning more and more about Mark Miller to this day about, you know, who he supports politically, even though he's, he's not from this country and just, yeah, I mean, you know, we know who Mark Miller is, but back then we didn't. And, and when you go back and read it, you're like, Oh, it really was there on the page. Wasn't it kind of like, you know, I know people don't want to hear this, but kind of like James Gunn when he excuses his, you know, quote unquote, edgy humor from years ago. But every time I watch something that he that he does now in the past five, six, seven years, I'm like, it's still there. It's still there. So, yeah, it's it's a little odd. It's a little weird. You can definitely tell these are comics from a, a different time. 
Um, the creative teams are a level though, you know, you have to say that, or to some degree they're, they're of a quality. Uh, they may not be everybody's favorite, but you know, Bagley's art can be a little messy. Kubert art, it's interesting. He's not quite trying to do, uh, the nineties image stuff, but it's almost like Kubert filtering his artwork through the lens of widescreen comics, which are popular. Um, you know. And then you have, like I said, Bendis, you have uh, Mark Miller. I mean, these these are um, big names for the time. You also get the idea that this imprint, even though it's an alternate universe or an alternate take like Heroes Reborn or What Ifs or whatever else, you the reason it became popular is because Marvel just decided that it was going to be official. You know, this was not just going to be one year or one storyline, not like they do today, you know, how many miniseries do they do? And and they just spawn another universe, another alternate universe. And it's like, okay, there it is. This was a dedicated effort to try to appeal to younger readers, um, maybe try to get into the book market a little bit more with their trades. And, you know, somewhere along the way, I have to imagine they sold well enough. Well, I know they did that they were like, great, we have a winner here, let's keep going. Uh, and then my final last big thought is, um, I know comic book covers at this time were all about just being artwork for artwork's sake, but boy, do these Ultimate covers really take that to the max, especially Ultimate Spider-Man. You lay most of these first seven issues down without the issue number, and try to pick out which one comes first and second and third one, you can't do it. There's no way you could do it. Like, it's it's just crazy. It's crazy. All right, so the stories themselves, I don't have a lot of notes that I want to go through. Um, just some larger thoughts. For Ultimate Spider-Man, you can see how this story arc in the first seven uh, issues probably informed a lot of what Sam Raimi was going to do for his Spider-Man movie. For instance, some of the fight scenes that Parker has uh, feel like they become the fight scenes in the Raimi Spider-Man, the first Raimi Spider-Man movie. Um, maybe some of the characterizations, but not many. Certainly, you know, right away, Bendis is throwing in Osborne and Doc Ock. And, you know, you have Aunt May, Ben, Par uh, Uncle Ben, Flash Thompson. Mary Jane is right here from the beginning. Um, Captain Stacy gets introduced. So it's like they're really throwing in, even though they're, it takes six, seven issues to tell the origin story, they're, they're pulling from years worth of characters. This Parker is definitely a nerd, definitely an introvert. He's also not very likable right away. But as I was going through Marvel Saga and some of those early Spider-Man stories, I was realizing that neither was that Peter Parker either. I mean, there were many times that he was thinking, oh, maybe I should become a villain so that I can make money off my powers. And this Parker doesn't go to that extreme, but there are a lot of times where he's just young. He's 15 and... and He's not very likable, you know, so that was fun to read. Um, eventually, you get the typical things, you know, he gets bit, he realizes he has powers, uh, he also 
This version also jumps from a, a moving car for a different reason. Um, he has the great power, great responsibility, talk with Uncle Ben. Uh, he sort of does the thing with the burglar, except it's not in the wrestling um the wrestling scenario it's it's in a total different scenario but he still goes to the warehouse after ben parker is killed to confront the criminal he doesn't have his webbing at that time though again a lot of echoes with the raimi movie one of the big things that i noticed though is when he gets bit all of his classmates see it in fact he throws the spider and it lands on mary jane and then one of the one of his other classmates kong steps on the spider to that, you add that Norman Osborn clearly knows that something is up with Peter Parker. And uh, I'm really looking forward to, will he really have a secret identity? I mean, once he makes himself known, which he does by the end of these seven issues, his friends must go, oh, that's Parker. They, they have to know, you know, because he's having all these incidents in school. He's having spasms. He's, he's breaking desks. He's all of a sudden picking fights with Flash Thompson, and he's suddenly a good basketball player, you know. There's just a lot going on that I'm like, okay, uh, I understand the change, but what is, does that get reflected? Now, obviously, those of you who've read this before, you know the answer. There is one moment that's a little weird in the second issue when he's exploring his powers, and he's doing all these tricks, and, and he's trying to figure out his strength. There are like a few panels where all of a sudden his wrist, something about his wrist hurts. And I'm like, oh, that must be the organic web shooters like they do in the Sam Raimi movie. But then by the end of these seven issues, because his father was a scientist that dealt with uh, like molecular adhesion, Parker winds up creating web shooters for web shooters for himself. So I was like, wait a minute, did, do they drop the organic web shooters or does that happen later and I just haven't read that yet. So I guess I'll find that out when I get to it. J. Jonah Jameson shows up in issue six. We also get some larger Ultimate Universe stuff. For instance, Kingpin is mentioned, and also Murdoch, and Captain America, and later Hulk, who apparently lives in Utah at this time. So we don't see those characters, but they're obviously there. They're obviously trying to create a larger ultimate universe even in these early stories by the end of this first story arc we get green goblin we get a battle between him and spider-man and uh you know it's uh it's uh, goblin knows who parker is knows who spider-man is and um you know like i said we have doc ock waiting in the wings and who else you know who uh, i guess we'll see who else shows up in the Ultimate Universe? But as far as these first seven issues, that's where we end. For Ultimate X-Men, what I got from this is... Okay, so first of all, everybody's pretty young. We got Beast, uh, Jean Grey, Cyclops. They pick up Iceman in the first issue. He's 15 years old. We got Storm. We got Colossus. And then, you, of course, you have Magneto and his brotherhood, including Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver... I know they show up in Ultimate, so I don't know how they make that connection. Um, but they're treated as almost like um, different branches of some kind of like m different sides of these militias, almost. You know, with words like mutant nest and an organized cell of outcasts. 
Um, Magneto says, you know, Xavier assembled a rival camp to our own, his naive integrationist ideals. So what's going on at this point is mutant hysteria has really kicked off. The Sentinels are patrolling and um, Professor X is just trying to be part of, you know, part of humanity. And Magneto, who was located in the Savage Land, is obviously trying to overthrow humanity. There are some um, very interesting parallels to what Hickman does in uh, House of X. For instance, Magneto being in Savage Land is very much like Professor X being in Krakoa. Um, Magneto wants everybody on the Savage Land to learn a language, which I was like, whoa, that's like right out of um, the Krakoa era. They call it Epsilon Omega, the mutant alphabet. I was like, oh, that's interesting. Um, as I said before, characters aren't very likable. Uh, Storm doesn't have too much control of her powers, but she's also not totally on board with what Professor X is selling her. Uh, in the mix, Magneto sends Wolverine to assassinate Professor X by infiltrating the X-Men, but of course, he gets the hot for hots for a very young Jean Grey, and by the end, decides to tell her the truth, and then I, I guess apparently he's going to stay with the X-Men, but she's not happy with it. They do actually sleep with each other in these issues. Um, or, if, I mean, it's heavily implied that they shared a hotel room together. But then she's pissed off that uh, when she learns about his true nature. Magneto decides to kidnap the president's daughter. The X-Men have to uh, rescue her in, in Croatia, of all places. Magneto uh, then comes to their rescue when the X-Men are attacked by uh, local forces. And, you know, of course, he's offering up what he has to offer. And Cyclops actually joins him in the Savage Land. I, I thought maybe it was like his version of what Wolverine was doing. But it seems like he really meant to go there. But then he realizes just how, how brutal the Brotherhood can be. So he winds up warning the, the professor um, because... Uh, the X-Men saved the daughter of the president, so he decides to stop all of the Sentinel patrols, but then he says, no, I'm going to send them after Magneto in the Savage Land. So they go and attack the Savage Land, very much like the way they attacked Kenosha during uh, the Morrison run. Magneto manages to stop them, and then he sends them back to D.C., and he's going to kill the president and subjugate humanity, etc., etc. So Cyclops has to warn Professor X. He also tries to get Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver to go against their father, which they do. And then Professor X manages to take out Magneto once his helmet is removed. It feels a little like Planet X. It feels a little like, you know, some of the movies. Um, and then by the end... Uh, the X-Men are somewhat welcomed, and Professor X says to Cyclops at the end, Phase 2 will be a lot more interesting. He comes across very calculated, just like this whole House of X stuff. It's like, I don't know. I don't know if I could trust this version of Professor X either. A few small points here and there. Colossus and Storm are kind of an item, and if you go back and read those early giant size era X-Men comics, Colossus totally had a crush on, on Storm. So they're bringing that here. By the end of these six issues, 
Uh, Beast gets injured. They have to do some kind of transplant thing on him, and he winds up getting blue hair, although he's not fuzzy just yet. Magneto has a weird line where he says, It's been years since I've even tasted flesh, human or otherwise. Referring to the fact that he's probably a vegetarian. But he says human or otherwise. What? Is he a cannibal? Is he joking? Does he mean sex? Like, what? What did he mean by that? (laughs) There's that, you know, Miller humor again that I'm just like, that's awkward. I don't know what he means by that. And lastly, it is cool to see that Jean Grey pretty much is the field leader uh, over even Cyclops because she has the mental abilities. You know, she can talk to everybody, but she's the one who calls the shots, and that's kind of fun. So, yeah, of the two, I don't know which one I would pick over, you know, Ultimate Spider-Man or Ultimate X-Men. They're very early in their storytelling. They're very early in even what the whole Ultimate Ultimate Universe is, you know. So I don't know how their origin stories, I don't know how they're going to play out. Are they going to become classics within the Ultimate Universe or, or do we just go from here, you know. Um, I have to imagine that Ultimate Spider-Man probably gets a little better because everybody who did read that title really loved it. Um, yeah, you know, they are what they are. As far as reading projects go... Um, they're easy to read. Uh, I take pretty hefty notes, but I may not take as many notes, um, with future story arcs. And what I'll do is kind of like what I do with, uh, what I'm doing with Heroes Reborn. I probably will read chunks. I'll just keep reading chunks. And if there's anything worth talking about, maybe I will, you know, maybe at the end of the first year or at the end of two years, I don't know. And then of course, as we get new titles, Uh, I'll talk about them. I am looking forward to rereading Ultimates itself. I think that was even a title that was a possible contender for a breakdowns type episode. Possibly. We'll see. So yeah, this is my Ultimate Universe reading project. Those of you who have read the Ultimate Universe, uh, let me know what you thought of these first opening arcs. I would love to hear from anybody who was like, yeah, oh yeah, I got into Marvel for the first time with the Ultimate Universe, or I got into comics for the first time with the Ultimate Universe. That would be very interesting to hear from you all. All right, there's your daily reads for this week. We will try to get back to the daily reads whenever we can. SAG-AFTRA has announced Thursday that it is on strike against film and TV companies, joining in solidarity with the Writers Guild of America, who has been on strike since May 2nd. Now, if you don't know who or what SAG-AFTRA is, they represent 160,000 actors, announcers, broadcast journalists, dancers, DJs, news writers, news editors, program hosts, puppeteers, recording artists, singers, stunt performers, voiceover artists, and other media professionals. They are the faces and voices that entertain and inform America and the world. As usual, when something like this gets national attention, I start to see commentary from all around this topic, 
as someone who also belongs to a union for actors, for theater actors, and has a few stories of his own about how people I've worked with have manipulated the system in their favor against my benefit. Some of the commentary I see is awfully revealing of how quickly some people are to just accept things and continue on, if you will. So instead of hearing my voice uh, stammer over thoughts of support of the strikes and of condemnation towards those who deserve it, I'm going to play one of my favorite clips from a comedian that just gets it. You're going to know exactly who it is as soon as you hear it. Yes, there's going to be some salty language, so be warned. By the way, those people that I've had dealings with that were not in my favor, there's a reason I give them the side eye, and I give them a nice, polite, short no thank you uh, the next time they try to engage my services. Anyway, listen, really listen, and enjoy. There's a reason. There's a reason for this. There's a reason education sucks, and it's the same reason that it will never, ever ever be fixed. It's never going to get any better. Don't look for it. Be happy with what you got. Because the owners of this country don't want that. I'm talking about the real owners now. The real owners, the big wealthy business interests that control things and make all the important decisions. Forget the politicians. The politicians are put there to give you the idea that you have freedom of choice. You don't. You have no choice. You have owners. They own you. They own everything. They own all the important land. They own and control the corporations. They've long since bought and paid for the Senate, the Congress, the state houses, the city halls. They've got the judges in their back pockets. And they own all the big media companies, so they control just about all of the news and information you get to hear. They got you by the balls. They, they spend billions of dollars every year lobbying, lobbying to get what they want. Well, we know what they want. They want more for themselves and less for everybody else. But I'll tell you what they don't want. They don't want a population of citizens capable of critical thinking. They don't want well-informed, well-educated people capable of critical thinking. They're not interested in that. That doesn't help them. That's against their interest. That's right. They don't want people who are smart enough to sit around the kitchen table and figure out how badly they're getting fucked by a system that threw them overboard 30 fucking years ago. They don't want that. You know what they want? They want obedient workers. Obedient workers. People who are just smart enough to run the machines and do the paperwork and just dumb enough to passively accept all these increasingly shittier jobs with the lower pay, the longer hours, the reduced benefits, the end of overtime, and the vanishing pension that disappears the minute you go to collect it. And now they're coming for your social security money. They want your fucking retirement money. They want it back so they can give it to their criminal friends on Wall Street. And you know something? They'll get it. They'll get it all from you sooner or later because they own this fucking place. It's a big club, and you ain't in it. Send feedback to Peter at thedailyrios.com. Go follow The Daily Rios Instagram. Go leave a comment on The Daily Rios website. Follow me on Twitter, Peter J. Rios. Review me on your favorite podcast catcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify. Send me your book club recommendations. Send me promos. Send me audio talkback clips. This has been The Daily Rios, episode 626 for Saturday, July 15th, 2023. Talk to you soon. 